0: Welcome to the Becker Spine and Orthopedic Review Podcast. I'm Alan Condon, a writer-reporter at Becker's Healthcare. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Thomas Miller, Sports Medicine Section Chief at Carilion Clinic in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, Dr. Miller, a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, Could you please introduce yourself and share a little bit more about your background?
1: Uh, Certainly, Um, and I'm very um, pleased to be here and I I appreciate uh, being able to participate. I am the section chief uh, for sports medicine at uh, Carilion Clinic and Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine. I'm also the vice chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. As part of my responsibility here, I manage a uh, co-branded outpatient surgery center in Roanoke, and I am also responsible for the uh, hospital system's ambulatory uh, operating room uh, sites.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Well, to kick things off and get the conversation rolling, I'd like to tell, if you could tell us a little bit more about where your practice is today and how it has changed since the pandemic began. My practice is at a, uh,
1: actually uh, the central hub of a healthcare system. It's a level one trauma center. It's affiliated with uh, medical school and residency training programs. So that part of things is is um, very much along the academic and tertiary referral component of uh, care. The other side of that is, um, in in the Commonwealth of Virginia, you can sort of look at it as areas that that had high exposure and high incidence of COVID versus uh, significantly lower, and and the state was lumped into one large conglomerate at one time, until people realized how, how uh, separate it uh, was as far as that. So northern Virginia and the Tidewater area, Richmond, uh, had much higher numbers than we do here. Uh, our numbers have remained relatively low. We have not seen the, the high pressure on our system as far as hospital admissions or management of uh, patients. We are seeing gradual increases in our our numbers of of positive patients, but that's, I think, very much tied to increased testing capability and mandated testing associated with elective surgical procedures. So before all this, uh, I would be the first to say that that our health system and our uh, across the board, all of our operating rooms were significantly ahead of uh, any projections that I think anybody would have come up with as far as case volumes and case numbers and uh, you know any any metric that you would use that that ground to a halt um, and we moved into a very restricted phase of surgical permissions is the best way I could put it, where we had our in-house definition of what were essential surgeries or emergent surgeries and and I think, our system, like many other systems, came up with, with very similar criteria for what cases could appropriately be done uh, during COVID, regardless of what our numbers were. Here, we, we planned to try to minimize risk and not overburden the system. And as things have stayed stable, and, and even for us, our, our short spike uh, has started to flatten out, we've re- returned to an elective and, and um, more routine surgical practice, albeit
0: with front-end screening that we did not used to use before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and looking a bit further ahead, uh, where do you see your practice headed in the next 18 to 24 months? I, I'm curious to hear what you see being different then and what you think will remain the same.
1: It was we we we've been tracking our numbers here, and we're seeing a progressive increase in in our patient volumes at our ambulatory sites. In the same as we work our way through our um, surgical case volumes, and it's been interesting. The patients who have come back in um, post restrictions are coming in because they're still planning for elective surgeries as as if none of this existed. I think they're very well aware of the potential risk. They have problems that they wish to have addressed. And when I see somebody come in now, they come in and they're here to be scheduled as if this never occurred. The backside of that is we've got a patient population that was put on hold for elective procedures. And we're seeing some of them who very much want to get out of the queue and get back in line for their procedures. But a not insubstantial uh, number of the patients have decided they're either going to put this off and see how the dust settles or wait until they've got the economic capability to do this because they've been out of work for a period of time. And some of them have just decided, you know, I lived with this for three or four months. I'm going to see how long I can live with this as long as it's not going to really have a terrible outcome for me long term. So. I think we'll see our volumes come back up very similar on a month-by-month basis to pre-COVID. I think we'll see some of our patients who were put off add to that pool, but I think we're going to level off where we did before, assuming that they're not you know, secondary and tertiary spikes or that we don't go through this again a year from now. And the, the, the patients needing elective Intervention, I, I think, are still going to be the same patients, and as long as we can prove that we can safely take care of them, we should offer the services and, and let them make their decisions.
0: In, in terms of in terms of the patients who are deciding to, to to forego surgery, what 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 are the types of conditions that that these patients have um, that you're seeing?
1: I, I would start that with the the criteria that we put in place as we started to return to truly elective surgery. We had we had quite a number of um, limitations, whether it was age-based, comorbidities, support services, and we've whittled those down as we've seen the numbers not increase, but we're still left with a population who have their own concerns or concerns for their family. It's, it's typically our older patients it's typically patients who have a few more comorbidities not that they're not good ambulatory candidates because they are they're still you know ASA 2 or stable ASA 3 but some of the patients said you know I'm I'm 67 years old and I just think I'm going to I'm going to wait and and see if I can put up with my torn rotator cuff and I think part of our Counseling for them has been well. You know, you've got a you've got a relatively small cuffed hair. You're, you're not that dysfunctional right now. Just understand that you know we do want to see you back and make sure you don't fall through the cracks. The other subset are are the patients who are concern, concerned about employment or insurance. And you know there have been people who have have struggled economically, and as much as they want to get problems taken care of they've either burned through their their savings or they are waiting to return to work and don't want to risk that and it's it's very similar to what we saw several years ago when people are trying to figure out new health plans and and whether or not they were going to be covered those those patients didn't disappear but but they delayed and eventually came back for for their care but but we're, we're getting that from patients. And the last part of this is we have a protocol in place as far as preoperative um, screening where patients need to be in isolation for a short period of time prior to surgery. And as much as they want the surgery, the the five days associated with you know, isolation and testing and so on pre-op that we use, and, and I know every system has a different algorithm for this, but those couple days of isolation to minimize their conversion risk impact some of them they said you know we're just going to wait until that doesn't exist anymore
0: Mm -hmm. yeah interesting thank you so much for sharing your insight there um uh, obviously what's on top of the mind for everyone at the moment we're hearing a lot of healthcare experts talk about the potential for a second covid 19 wave in the fall so just curious to hear what, what preparations your practice is making for that potential second surge if it were to happen I
1: think the the biggest thing that we've seen is a much more proactive approach to maintaining a store of essential supplies. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think people got caught off guard. I think people did not expect this to expand as rapidly and as broadly as it did and put as much of a strain on healthcare systems. I think healthcare systems have gotten much smarter that, you know, the just in time supplies may not be the best idea and and as supplies are available, a, a reasonable stockpile that you work through and continually replace rather than we have enough for a brief period of time because our supply chain has always been so consistent. I think We've become, I would expect most healthcare systems have begun, to not completely trust a smooth supply chain and and try to put things aside just in case.
0: Mm -hmm. And I know you touched a little bit on the, the economic difficulties that some patients are experiencing now. I'm just curious if you could touch a little bit on if that second spike were to come in the fall. How big of a, how significant of an economic uh, impact would that have on the orthopedic field? Well,
1: you know, our our system pretty much, aside from truly urgent and emergent surgeries, shut itself down. We converted as much as we could to telemedicine. We really restricted our face-to-face visits, and we were able to manage our patients. But I think the word that nobody wanted to use is that we were truly dealing with rationed care. And you ration care and you try to mitigate impact to your patients um, by, by choosing as best you can. But we already know that there are patients who have delayed their care. And I think there will be patients who are impacted if we go through a second wave and this happens again. From an economic standpoint, you know, I think it seems like we've weathered this first storm, but but it's like anything else. You can only weather so many storms before you know you're you're done with your savings. You're done with the whatever economists recommend that you put aside, and and now 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 you're past the giving up frills, and you're past X, Y, and Z, and now you're digging into the to the really important stuff that you try never to get into. So mm-hmm. um, it would it it will be a, a big economic issue if there is a second wave and we have to go through another shutdown. Um we just kind of come through this and have our head above water. And the only the only part that I can see is people have um, become somewhat less reliant on that. Everything is always going to be so nice and smooth and consistent and have become much more realistic about. You can't you can't plan on your volumes always staying at the rate that you're seeing. You have to be a little bit uh, have a little bit of a jaded eye when when things are going well.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then during the pandemic, obviously there was a lot of discussion about what is considered essential surgery. How do you think this discussion will affect orthopedic and spine surgery going forward?
1: You know, it's. Looking at articles that have come out, uh, talking to folks in other centers, I think there was, at least in orthopedics, uh, a fairly good consensus about what constituted essential surgery. And essential surgery, you can take emergent surgery where nobody would question. And and that didn't change at all. And then it came down to, if you're delaying intervention, Is it going to affect the patient's long-term outcome? Is it going to be more difficult to do the surgery? And and that's one that didn't get discussed quite as much. Um, Everybody kind of looked at it and said, yeah, if I put this surgery off, the the outcomes are really going to be poor. Um, we, We need to do this now. This is simply not something that you should delay and then try to figure out how to work around later. But that other part of it is is this going to be technically more difficult i think people got more realistic about as things went on and they said yeah i could put this off but boy it is really going to be hard to do this in three months it's just you know we're going to have to work around scar we're not going to be doing a primary you know reduction of a fracture we're going to have to take down callus and yeah they won't die if we don't do this but but we can't guarantee or at least look for as good an outcome and i think that is a good definition of essential surgery. Um, what, what are the impacts to the to long-term outcome to the patient? And if you can't figure out a way to reduce those, then, then maybe you need to think of this as, as essential. And, and, you know, we're not, we're not cardiac surgeons. We're not vascular surgeons. Um, so, you know, for the most part, people don't, don't die when, when we do or don't do surgery. But their long-term functional outcomes can certainly be impacted. And I've heard from other systems about patients who who had significant neurologic deficits who were put off and, and they may not get recovery. In our world where I am, we would have considered them to have an essential problem that needed to be addressed. And And again, we had the luxury of being in an area that was not overwhelmed. We weren't trying to figure out what to do with ventilators, and I think there have been scoring systems that that take not only the essential component of the surgery, but what's the impact on the community as far as resources? What would be the impact if they have to go to a unit better stay overnight? And and then what are the patient's personal risk factors? An essential surgery in a high-risk patient still may not be the best thing to do, or an essential surgery in an area where they don't even have the capacity for ICU beds or hospital beds in other areas of the country might be considered essential, and you wouldn't question it. But in the environment where this is occurring, it can't be considered as essential. So I think you have to take it in the perspective of of those components. And, and again, there are there were scoring systems put out that I think did a really good job of defining those categories. And and we used them for quite a quite a long time and used them when we returned to doing electrosurgeries. We did not want to overstress the system or put patients at risk, even if their procedures
0: were ones that we would say, yeah, it's it's time to do this. Yeah, I am really interesting to get your thoughts there on essential surgery. Obviously there's a lot to unpack there. Um, But following on from Essential Surgery, I'd love to get your insight on on what you see becoming essential technology in, in the orthopedic and spine field as a result of the pandemic. I think what the pandemic has shown
1: is, or has reinforced is truly trying to use the resources in a community in the best manner possible. I'm old enough to have seen, you know, I started when there was no such thing as outpatient surgery and and have seen the evolution and the migration of cases from, from an inpatient environment to an outpatient environment. And, and, and for our system, as we look at resuming surgeries, the first thing that came to light was critically asking, why does surgery X or Y need to be done in a hospital environment, if at all? And I think anything that allows us to move procedures out of a hospital environment so hospital resources can be used for the subset of patients that truly need a hospital environment is is going to start checking checking boxes. And you know, and that's been that's been what's gone on with, with arthroplasty cases and his spine has moved more towards short stay or or non-overnight stay procedures I think we're going to continue to see that and I think where the innovations that allow anything that reduces you know, blood loss anything that is minimally invasive and and thinking outside that box is going to be the next step on this I mean, I I know somebody who who had a spine procedure recently and I, I was almost embarrassed when they asked me about their incisions and it was like, I had absolutely no idea, and and I do sports, so I don't really pay that much attention to the step-by-step technical component of it, but how much of their procedure was done in a percutaneous manner? And looking at that going, okay, other than pain control, why were they in the hospital? And I think we're, we're getting that essential question who really needs to be in the hospital, and and what do we have that's going to let us move move folks out? And we'll continue to see that, um, you know, just as we get better at, at perioperative pain management, and that's the only reason somebody's been kept in the hospital is we're we're finding there are procedures that the patients are much happier never being anywhere near a hospital, and that's the one thing I'm hearing from patients now is. Yeah, I really want to have this done, just, just tell me that I can have this done as an outpatient. That's the first thing I want to know. And if, if you can offer outpatient procedures, then, then you've got a patient subset who's already happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's definitely a, an interesting trend to keep an eye on. And I'm, I'm sure as a result of the pandemic as well, it'll continue to sharpen the drive from these procedures to be formed on an outpatient basis. Um, Dr. Miller, I'd just like to really really thank you for, for your time today it's been a real pleasure speaking to you and thank you again for sharing your insight and joining us on the Becker Spine and Orthopaedic Review Podcast. It's been my pleasure thank you very much Fantastic, I, I thought really